Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Entrepreneur Architect Podcast, Episode 48. Welcome back to the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, you're in the process of launching a startup, or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. Today's guest at the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast is the principal at the Greenway Group, which is a leading strategy consulting and business networking firm in both the construction and design industry. He's also a director at the Design Futures Council and uh, the associate publisher for Design Intelligence Magazine. Um, Bob Fisher is today's guest, and, and he and I met while we were uh, both jurying the architecture business plan competition last year. Uh, we met in person in Chicago at the AIA convention and at the uh, the final, um, the announcement of the winners of the business plan competition. And that that connection through the business plan competition uh, also led us to uh, to talk a little bit about the future, uh, the, the, the foresight report for the American Institute of Architects. Bob is also the editor, I believe, of the, uh, with the Greenway Group, who publishes the foresight report for the AIA, which is the foresight report basically is, a, is the annual report for the AIA, sort of talks about where they are and where they're going. Uh, and I had the opportunity to be interviewed for that um, and talk a little bit about small firm architecture. And, uh, and, uh, and then also was on a panel discussion during the convention to talk about the foresight report. So today's guest is a, is a friend of mine, Bob Fisher. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast. Well, Mark, thanks a lot. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been a, a a fan of Entrepreneur Architect for a long time, so it's uh, really cool that you asked me to uh, come and talk to the audience. Well, thank you, thank you for that. Um, I'd like to start this interview like I do with all my interviews. I want to sort of talk about your origin story. So let's go way back in time to uh, little Bobby and talk about how you got from little Bobby to where you are today. All right. Well, uh, it's a pretty curvy path. Um, I actually started out a long time ago uh, in the visual communications realm. So I was a practicing graphic designer and I did 
corporate communications, and I was an art director at Cartoon Network for a number of years, uh, which is basically a design manager. Uh, then I had my own marketing communications firm for a while and eventually moved from being a marketing communications practitioner into being a marketing strategist and then into being a business strategist. So eventually what I did was uh, sort of moved my way uh, up the chain uh, to the position that I have now. I've always had what I call boss envy, which is uh, which I define this way. When I was a when I was an illustrator and a designer, I was being bossed around by creative directors. And I thought, gosh, that, I'm, I'm really curious about what they do. And so I would learn a little bit about what that role was and what it took to be part of that role. And eventually I, I would get interested in doing it and go ahead and learn what I needed to learn to move into that position. So that's sort of how I, how I came up the, uh, up the chain. But there have been two really consistent threads in my entire career. Uh, one has been design in a variety of different disciplines, and the other is business. So here at Greenway and Design Futures Council and Design Intelligence, those two, uh, those two things come together very nicely. And our, you know, our mission is basically to help design-based organizations thrive uh, through being better business people, very similar to what your mission is. Uh, so I get to, to experience that and enjoy that every day. It does sound very similar to to where uh, where I'm putting entrepreneur architect. It, it's interesting. I think the majority of your audience and the people who follow design intelligence are probably more uh, mid-sized firms and larger firms. But I would certainly uh, suggest that small firms also uh, take a look at design intelligence and see what what there's what they have to offer because I think there's lots to learn from a small business. Uh, small firm perspective uh, that design intelligence is is offering. Absolutely. I mean, if you, you know, we were talking a little bit before uh, we started taping the podcast about the uh, the similarities in the challenges and the, the issues that firms of all sizes face. So one of the things that we like to promote as an example is a spirit of entrepreneurship. You know, in a mid to large size firm, it's every bit as important to have that spirit of entrepreneurship in the organization as it is when you've got a small firm or a sole practitioner who's out there trying to uh, trying to make a go of it. Yeah, I, I think small firm, the difference probably I would say is the biggest difference is that medium sized firms and certainly with larger size firms is that there are people who are dedicated to specific uh, positions. In, to run the business and to market the firm. Uh, small firm architects and sole proprietors are doing all that themselves. And I think that's probably the biggest, uh, the biggest difference. But there's, that's, that's one of the things that, that will make a small firm successful is to look at what those medium size and large firms are doing um, and, and do it as well in their own way. Well, it, you're you're absolutely right, and so you run into two problems when you're you're talking about smaller firm practice. There's a question of resources. You know, unless you, you know you've got these people out there who might have Superman syndrome and they're trying to do everything themselves, and will quickly find out that they're either going to outstrip what their natural abilities are, what time they have to put into something, how much money they have to put into something. Uh, so it's a it's a delicate kind of balance. Now, on the upside for smaller practitioners, and this is one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to you for the Foresight Report, is we see a lot of important changes in how the business of architecture is being done coming from smaller firm practices. And the reason is that smaller organizations can be more entrepreneurial. They can, they can pivot more quickly. And technology is, innate, is providing all of these great tools, uh, both in terms of practice and in terms of promoting the firm that allows people to to experiment. So, you know, sole, sole practitioners, you know, small firm architects have the ability to have a voice now that they didn't before all of these great web-based technologies, uh, you know, came about. And it's, it's all the stuff that you are taking advantage of with Entrepreneur Architect. You know, when you've got podcasts, when you've got blogs, when you've got social media, you've got all these ways that you can get out there with whatever message that you have, whether it's about practice, you know, and the business of architecture with what you're doing, or 
in promoting, you know, how your firm practices and, and what makes you different. So there are great tools and it's exciting to see people taking advantage of that. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's an amazing time to be a small practitioner. Um, the reason I do what I do with Entrepreneur Architect is to be a model for other architects to show what you can do. To to and and my plan and my mission, as everybody who listens knows, is to be an influential force in the profession to to give a voice to small firm architects and show them how they can be more influential and and have the profession and have the AIA and all the other pieces that make the profession work uh, to be to, to get more noticed and to and to have those large larger organizations move in the direction that small firms want them to move and and those tools and and the way we're doing things here uh, is how we can do that yeah absolutely and you know in some ways if you think about the skills that it takes to be an architect uh, people should be naturally primed to take on these kind of challenges so if you're going to successfully market your practice, you need a combination of smart systems and you need the kind of messages that are going to move people. In other words, you have to have the kind of mind that can balance being systematic where it's appropriate, but also being inspiring where it's appropriate too. So if you think about uh, designing and delivering a project, all of that kind of comes into play. So it should be, it should be ideally something that's, that can become natural uh, for small firm practitioners to do. Right. And I think, I think one of the things that small firms need to focus more on, and I think it's, it's really will come naturally if they just focus on it is, is marketing their brand and really focusing on, on their brand that they do have a brand. Uh, and, and it's a matter of, um, of managing that brand. So, so could you talk a little bit about branding and how, maybe small firm architects could learn from what the larger firms are doing? Sure, and you know, one of the things that we, that we see is that you know, the, the professions in general are becoming more savvy about brand and how it works in. You know, if you start talking about brand, immediately people might be thinking about very large organizations. You know, brands like uh, all the consumer brands that Procter & Gamble puts out there, and they might think about mega brands like Apple and all of that entails and think, well, that's, that's really a game that, you know, larger organizations play. But you can think of brand um, in some ways as, as a reputation. Um, we think of brand as being comprised of kind of four parts, right? And you can imagine, you can imagine all four of these things coming together. The first part is your internal reality. And for your firm, that's the culture, the values, the vision, the mission, what it is that inspires you uh, to, to run this business or to, to have started this business in the first place. The second component of brand are what we call actions and attitudes. How do people, um, how do people within your organization treat one another and treat people outside the organization? Is it in harmony with who you say you are through your values? Uh, are you living your values? Are you living your vision and your mission? Do you have a culture that supports that? The third part of it is what we call the artifacts. And those are all of the different uh, icons and imagery and messages that are out there to represent you when a, you know, when a, an individual from your firm is not dealing directly with, let's say, a prospect. So that can be everything from your logo and your graphic identity to the design of of your space, you know, if you're receiving clients there and things like that, if, if in fact you have a physical location, all of that is part of your brand. And the fourth part, which is very important, and the part that you have no, you know, little control over, but should hope to influence is what the market perceives you to be. All of those things, where they intersect, that's truly your brand. One of the things that people need to know about uh, a brand, just like a reputation is, you're going to have one, regardless of whether you try to create it or influence it. You don't get to opt out of this. So if you're in the marketplace and you've been dealing with people, they're going to have a conception of who you are, um, or they're not going to they're not going to know everything about you, and that becomes kind of your brand. So what you, you ideally what you do is you take the three parts of it that you have some control over: your internal reality, the actions and attitudes of your people and the artifacts that represent you. 
and you work those together in a plan to try to help shape what market perceptions are. There's one other really important thing to know about brands uh, that professional services need to know compared to other kind of brands, and it makes them unique. That is that when you have a product company, like let's take, um, let's take a, a consumer products company. Um, I buy a certain kind of laundry soap, and I'm not happy with that laundry soap. I think it's terrible, and I form a very negative opinion of it. I have a bad image of what that brand is. Well, you know, my, my negative thoughts are aimed toward that product. So that brand stands in between the, the consumer and the company that made it. So the company itself is, has this intermediary that kind of blocks it. You know, in Greenway Group, we did a study one time of a, of a large firm or for a large firm. And one of the things that we found out is that even in a firm of a thousand people, the average number of contacts that any client had within that organization was around six. So six people carried essentially the responsibility for the brand impression for that entire thousand person firm with even major clients. So, you know, that highlights for us the importance of having people within the firm be ambassadors of that brand. And part of, you know, the first step in that is to be aware of what the brand is. And you, you get aware of what your brand is or should be through having some clarity in what you're about and who you are kind of in the, at the deepest parts of the organization. So a vision and a mission statement are not the kind of things that just should hang in a cheesy poster in the, in the copy room somewhere. They should be ideals that drive your business and ideals that help, um, that help sort of shape how people treat prospects, how people treat clients that they're working with and how people treat each other. That's really where the, the, the heart of the brand is, is having integrity between all those parts. Yeah, I think the vision and the mission are critical to that. Uh, and I think that, that the first place, you know, I'm constantly railing about business plans, that our small firms should have business plans. Um, but one of the things that I like to talk about in, in that business plan is something that I've developed that I call a vision narrative. And it's a story. It's, it's basically taking um, looking into the future, say five or 10 years from, from now, um, and writing a story, you know, a, a, a creative story about what you want your life to be. So, you know, if you want a, a firm of, of 25 people doing amazing, you know, public buildings, then that should be your story. If you want to, uh, do residential additions and alterations like we do at five cat studio, um, and we want to have a more integrated life with our firm and our family, then that's the story we should be telling. And that, and that by, by creating and getting to, into very minute details about what your daily life is like in that vision narrative will allow you to sort of uh, solidify what you want your, your message to be, what you want your firm to ultimately become from a, from a business model point of view and, and a branding point of view. And then from that, you can start refining it down into a, vi a vision statement and a mission statement. And, and that will uh, then allow, as you bring on employees to say, okay, this is how we do it here. This is the mission, this is the vision, uh, and this is how I wanna get to where I wanna go. And this is, how, this is your part in that. And, and then when you start creating your brand, your marketing for your brand, then you also ha can go back to your, your narrative and your mission and your vision and start saying, okay, how do I want to sculpt this brand to tell the story of where, who I am and where I want to go? Um, so that's something that, that I've done and I've, I've talked about in the past. Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic idea. And I love the tool of the vision narrative because what it is is it's essentially, um, it's a story. You know, it, it's, it taps into one of the most basic ways that we've communicated since we were all sitting around campfires outside of caves. Uh, so story is a powerful way or storytelling is a powerful way not just to communicate what something's about to other people. And you mentioned when you have employees, if that's what somebody wants to do, or if you're um, talking to prospects and you're talking about you're talking about who you are and you're talking about how you can help improve their lives. All of that is really just a process of storytelling. 
So starting out the vision of your firm with a story is fantastic. And it's also an act of uh, imagination, which is one thing that I'm sure everybody who's uh, launching an architecture firm is not lacking in. Right. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I love presenting it to architects is because many architects are so afraid to start that business plan or don't see the value in it. Um, but, but because we're creative people, that vision narrative uh, becomes something that's fun to do. It's fun to daydream and imagine what your life will be uh, and to write it down. And that'll sort of create the momentum to get to where you want to go. But, but um, the, I think that also the, the, the idea of, of storytelling and, and how that can help you become a successful architect, um, I, I think if you know the story that you want your employees to tell, and if you know the story that you want your, uh, your current happy clients to tell other prospects, so when they're finished, they, they say, this is an amazing firm, look at this architecture that, that this architect has created, and, and here's the story behind it. Um, and then they repeat the story that you've created and you've uh, molded and have handed to this client to tell other people. That all happens through branding, by, by educating your client and um, of what your story is so they can just repeat that same story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were talking about how, how powerful storytelling is. And uh, I always say that if there were two things that I could do, if I could wave a magic wand and make two things happen for architects uh, of, in practices of any size, frankly, they would be these. First is I would get the message out that it's not your job to financially subsidize the success of others. <laughs> Amen. And the second is I would make them fantastic communicators and storytellers because what architects do has such incredible power. It has such value to transform lives and organizations and communities and beyond that it's to me, a lot of what the missing component is, is storytelling. Uh, last week, we had one of our two yearly summits for the Design Futures Council, and it was called the Leadership Summit on Sustainable Design. And one of the big themes that came out of the conversations there was storytelling because of the power that it has to, to transform, uh, to transform, you know, it, it persuades, it can you know, garner support, all that kind of stuff. So you have a lot of people there who are very passionate about making our built environment more sustainable, not just in terms of ecological impact, but also in terms of things like social and economic equity. And they're working really hard to do that through their practices. And this tool that people kept referring to that they really needed to cultivate was storytelling. So you know, you can use storytelling and people use storytelling all the time, whether or not that they're, they're conscious of that. It's sort of like you have a brand, whether or not you decide that you, you want to have one, but people use storytelling all the time. All of us are attempting to persuade people, whether it's the teenager who wants the keys to the car or whether it's, uh, you know, a small firm architect who's trying to talk to a homeowner about things that they've done for others that they can that that architect can then do for the for the prospect. It's all storytelling and it's anytime you're trying to persuade anybody, story is a huge element in that. Yeah, I, I think I think it's also potentially one of the the main answers to the struggles our profession has. I think there's already a story out there uh, of what architecture is and how architects work and how much they get paid and how their process works and it's not completely accurate. Um, and it's not the story that most of us want to be told. But well, there's actually two stories. There's actually one story of this of the of the hero architect that's sort of in Hollywood and 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 uh, and primetime television, and you know this creative guy that pulls up in the Ferrari. Yeah, thanks, then, Ed. Yeah, and then there's the the reality of of how we all struggle to make a living and 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 how we're working to try to figure out how to do both the creative side and the business side. And, and get paid what we're really worth, get paid the value that we, we uh, contribute to society. There's, there's stories out there already that others are telling. And so if, if every individual architect um, focuses on their own story and creates their own brand and, and becomes a more successful business, um, then that story begins to shift in the grander scheme by each individual 
touch point in the profession telling the same story or a, or a consistent story, then the overall story over time will change. Well, you know, where you're going with that leads to another important point, which is, you know, there are stories that we tell others and there are stories that we tell ourselves. I mean, not to get too, too deep with this, but... And we can get uh, deep. <laughs> we can get deep. <laughs> well, ba- the, the idea is basically this. You know, there's an internal narrative that all of us have. And this internal narrative uh, helps shape the way that we perceive the world and what we do in it. And I think one of the one of the things that I've observed in all the design-based professions and, and architecture certainly is uh, in this camp is that people tell themselves certain stories about whether they can whether they can make a living, how much value they're delivering, whether other people will understand what they're doing. And a lot of times those stories that people tell themselves are unnecessarily negative. Uh, it's the kind of thing where, you know, I'm not sure exactly where it comes from. Uh, it might come from uh, educa- architectural education programs that focus on uh, designing an object. Uh, they focus on a rarefied view of architecture that kind of makes it inaccessible to, uh, to regular folks or people who aren't trained. Uh, but anyway, these, these internal narratives influence the stories that we tell others and, and decisions that we make. So I think that one of the things that's important to do is to get clear on what your story is by understanding what value you as an architect actually deliver. Now, that's not to get arrogant or cocky about it, mm-hmm. but really just to be aware of the influence that you're having. And one of the, one of the really important components of story is empathy. And one of the really important components of the design process is empathy. So the, you know, if the story that you're telling a prospect really has to do with helping them shape their story, okay, residential architecture as an example, you're creating the spaces in which people will play out the most important parts of their lives. They'll have their most, you know, in their most intimate relationships with their families are going to happen in that space. Uh, people spend a lot of time in that space. That is the place that they go to retreat from the world and to be the most, uh, the, to, to sort of be who they are the most. Right. Because this is, this is their private space. And kids this, too. So, you know, the, the kids yeah. who grow up in homes, they, they become who they are because of, in, 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 in great, in a, in a, some part, by the spaces they're growing up in. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So the thing is, is what what an architect is doing, and hopefully this is something that people are conscious of in in pre-design, and as they're doing basically, you know, programming for a project, is that they're really focused on helping the client create their story. Uh, It's kind of like helping the client create their own vision narrative, you know, that tool that you talked about using earlier. I mean, is that, are these ideas things that get into your own residential practice? Is this familiar to you? Yeah, they do. I, I, I know. I don't know if it's, it's certainly not part of our system. Although it, it may be something that should be part of our system. But I think when we're designing, uh, we're doing additions and alterations to people's existing homes. Um, so we're very uh, getting very intimate with the the way these people are going to live. Um, I think that story of of the of of where that family is today and where it wants to go uh, is certainly part of the the solutions we're coming up with. And that's yeah. how we're selling the ideas. We're not really talking about, you know, how cool it looks. We're talking about how it functions and how it's going to change the lives of the people who, who live in those homes. Yeah. So how do you go about, like, when you're working with a client and getting to know them, and or let's say that the client has already said, yeah, you know, we want to hire five cat when you go in to sort of assess what it is that they need and kind of define the problem that you're solving, what's that process like for you guys? Yeah, we actually have a questionnaire that we start with. As soon as we're hired, we send them a questionnaire. And it's about, um, I don't know, five or six pages. And it asks all kinds of questions that are, you know, technical questions like, you know, whether you're gas or oil for your heat, and, you know, do you, uh, what's your, your tax numbers, those kind of things. Uh, property lot lot numbers, but it also asks about you know what's your favorite space and why, you know where do you read and where do you read, um, 
do you do you have kids and how many kids do you have and where do they play all those kind of questions about how they live their lives and then at the end of that questionnaire there's two additional um, uh, tasks that we ask them to do the first one is there's a sheet with a list of about a hundred to two hundred descriptive words and we ask them to check off the words that appeal to them and it's not necessarily just for their project or their house but we're looking with this entire questionnaire we're looking to learn about who these people are um, because I often say that if you just give us a budget and a program we could design a great project for that for the house but it may not be the great project for that family and so this questionnaire helps us get there um, and when you check off all those words and you filter out the words that you didn't take, you're very, you have a very quick visual of who these people are and where they're coming from and their tastes and style. And then the last exercise is similar to many architects where we ask them to do, a, uh, we, we call it the love and loathe folders. We ask them to fill one folder uh, called the love folder with things that they love. And it's not, again, not necessarily just the architecture or their house, uh, but everything that they love so if they if they like traveling put pictures of traveling in there if there's certain colors they like put the colors in there if they have hobbies like sports cars or or fashion put those things in there and then the other folder is the complete opposite opposite it's the loathe folder and you fill that folder with things that you don't like and all of these things give us a tool to get to where you're asking us to go um, to, to get to, to we, we sit down and have a meeting and we go through all of this questionnaire and all of these pictures and all of these words and, and that leads us to a conversation and it leads to a story. It, it, it sort of becomes the prime for the story. It, it helps them tell us the, where they've come from and where they want to go uh, and their dreams and their hopes of what this house can be. And we, it also gets into more practical things like budget and timeline and that kind of thing. But it gives us the tools that we need to, to get to the, the answers that you're asking. So you're kind of working with them to help create what the story of this uh, what the story of this space is going to be and what it's going to mean for them. Right. right. I love. I really. Uh, I love that idea of the the. Did you call them the love and loathe? Yeah, the love which, and loathe folders. Which today originally they were magazine tear sheets in in physical folders. Today they're almost all coming through house idea books, and yeah. pin, and Pinterest boards. Yeah, one of the things that. Uh, that we know from working with industrial design firms and product firms is that they've got some pretty sophisticated ways to uh, to kind of figure out what the what the right story should be. Uh, one of the one of the things that they do in the design process early on is they have a lot of um, ethnographic uh, approaches to research where you're actually not just relying on what somebody can tell you, but you're relying on what you observe about them. My wife is a behavioral scientist uh, for the Centers for Disease Control, and she, she loves it when I quote her. And one of my favorite things that she said uh, one time is she said, people are not very good at telling you what they need. Their actions and behaviors are much more telling. And the idea of that is basically there's this wall of awareness between wants and needs. And if you ask somebody what they they need, they will actually give you those wants that they are conscious of. But people do all kinds of things in their homes. I mean, you know, uh, they have to get ready for work. They've got to get the kids off to school. They, uh, they come home and they have a way of unwinding after a long day. Uh, I'm very curious to, to know if there was some way to observe those processes rather than ask people about them, uh, if that wouldn't be a way to get even more rich information about what it is that a project needs to do to really meet the needs uh, of a particular family or an organization. Um, you know, I was on the client side one time of a, uh, a large campus project for a school. And one of the things I thought would be interesting to do would be to take people from the design team uh, in the architecture firm that helped us out and embed them with different students, or I should say embed them in, in the student population, have them just trail a student for a whole day and find out how that student has to get from one class to another. What do they need to do with their stuff? How much time do they have to get from one place to another? What is the experience like of sitting for a 55 minute class period within a given space? 
how does the daylighting feel? How do the how are the acoustics performing? All that kind of stuff, as opposed to you know going around and asking people in kind of focus group settings, which you know from from experience in the market research world, those are very valuable. But there's always this bias that gets in there, and there's always this kind of barrier that it's a little hard to to get through. You have to ask people obviously what they want and get them to participate in the process. But one of the things that I think is a, an interesting lesson or something to look at from another discipline of design that uh, is this idea of breaking through that wall of awareness and learning things by observing. I think when you ask people to put together like a love and loathe folder and when you ask people to do those word association exercises, that kind of that starts to get there because what's happening is is they're going to be revealing things about themselves and their preferences and who they are that they probably that they may not have known to talk about if you'd ask them a straight question or you get what's called social desirability bias right. which basically they're going to they're going to put a nice uh, label on it they, they tell you what they, they 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 want you to hear yeah absolutely there's a there's one other um, thing that you might be interested in on this topic there's a guy named Wayne Lee uh, who is now a professor at Georgia Tech, and he is a um, he's from the industrial design world. He was a car designer, uh, he designed cars and furniture. Um, he was also um, one of the first people to go through Stanford's D School. Uh, I don't know if you're you're familiar with that. And he was for years a consultant with uh, a firm called IDEO, and he's become a real um, expert in design process and design thinking and all that stuff. One of the things that he does with his students that I thought was really interesting in problem definition, it would be, it's a pre-design stage exercise, is he actually has them make a documentary of what it is they're trying to study. So in residential architecture, as an example, it would be like making the documentary of that family. And through the process of creating a, making a creative product, you learn all kinds of things about the subject that you're studying that might help inform uh, designing a better project. I thought that was kind of an intriguing approach that he was taking. There might be some ideas there. Yeah, that's a great idea to, to store. Um, because when you, if you have to create a documentary, you have to put so much thought and research into it in order for it to become a, a, an interesting story. Um, well, there's, would... a, there's, there's observation, too. Yeah. So you, you put all those things together. There's the thought, there's the research, and then there's, there's the observation. And you just observe without, you observe without judgment. You, know, you observe um, and, and kind of take it all in, and that, that becomes information on which to make design decisions. Yeah. I've heard of architects, not, not recently or often, uh, of spending an entire day with, with a client and, and basically mirror or shadowing them. Um, I, I could, I can, I can feel the eyes rolling of our audience <laughs> yeah, now, yeah, yeah. of of these big ideas that that take so much time and money uh, to do to do those kind of things. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's probably impractical to spend an entire day with a client unless you have a very high fee or you're working hourly and the client is is interested in that kind of thing. Um, but well, I, it's also there's also a trust level. I mean, people might think that's kind of weird if you if right. you say, "Hey, I want to uh, tag along with you for a whole day." But what if, in the questionnaires that you have, you said, "Tell me about all the steps that you have to go through to get ready for work," right? And make sure that you include these details and the things that you would be looking for if you were standing there, you know, observing the process. I mean, it might be, you know, because chances are people have not really thought about or been too conscious of how they have to move through their physical space in order to accomplish these important things that they've got to do each day. So there might be a way that you can do it where it is practical and it yeah. isn't intrusive, but you still get some of the same quality of information that can go into uh, making your design solution better. Yeah, I, I just had a, an idea. You, you could um, ask them to do the documentary, to, to yeah. ask them to take their iPhone and record your day, you know, go record your kids eating breakfast and having them go off to the school and, and record the process of, 
of, of all of the steps that it takes to, to wake up in the morning all the way through to getting the kids on the bus. And then what do you do after the bus and all the way through and, and then having, you know, a, a two or three hour um, video of a typical day in the life of this client from the client's perspective so they can kind of filter out the things that they're not comfortable sharing. Um, and it doesn't require us to spend the time doing that. And I think it might be an exercise much like my questionnaire that that is presented in a way that this is a lot of fun to do something like this and it will give us a tremendous amount of information to design a great space for you um, but it's not tedious or, or um, you know it is time consuming but I think a lot of clients would actually see some some value in doing something like that yeah I mean I can see I can see some resistance in clients because it would be it might seem like kind of a strange suggestion but if you get a few courageous people who are willing to go along with it, then what it becomes, it becomes a differentiator for your firm. Because you know, process for a service-based business can be a strong differentiator. And if you say, you know, we do things differently, here's how we do If you have a good story for why it is that you need to go through this kind of process, and then you can demonstrate that on the back end with results. And if you have the client telling uh, telling the story of how your project helped improve or change things for them in, in a positive way. Then what you have now, we're back into the uh, marketing and branding world because all of that becomes a story that you wind up telling. And if you get great results and you've got a really strong process and it's you're doing some things that are unique, that becomes a very powerful story that you can then go out to the marketplace and tell. And something that you can tell with great authenticity because it's you're just talking about what it is that you do and how you do it and what you believe. I mean, you, you're not making things up and you're not trying to talk people into things that, uh, that they don't want or need. You're just sharing with them examples of how you've been able to help other people. And even more powerfully, if they are able to share stories about how you were able to help them. Right. Right. The um, one of the stories that we tell at Five Cat Studio is that we're not um, we're not focused on creating great architecture. We're focused on managing the experience of the process. That that we're handholders. That that the, from a residential architecture point of view, the process of architecture is painful and scary and overwhelming. And by hiring us, we help you not only create a great piece of architecture because that's expected when someone hires an architect that they're going to get a great piece of architecture, um, but that that the process we're going to hold your hand from the very beginning and help you get all those ideas so you can so we can create that great space, all the way through to the very end. And we're going to help you through construction and get get you to the end and manage your expectations. So by the end, by the time we're finished. Uh, the process was a good one. Um, and then that's the story they tell other clients. When we get um, uh, references and we get testimonials, very often it's about how we've taken care of them and, and the story that we've created for them to tell. I would think that'd be particularly important through construction administration, mm -hmm. just because that's that's when everything becomes real and that's when you're going to come across a lot of the surprises. And that's when people are all going to have to be pretty flexible, right? To kind of get through the, through the whole right. process. And that's where the story shifts. When, when architects don't provide construction administration services, and this is a broken record for me, I will not do a project without construction administration. I don't think any architect should. Um, I, because that's an opportunity. We create the story and we, we guide them through this process of design and they're, and architect or, and clients are so in love with this process and this design that you've created. Then you hand it off to an, an uh, a contractor and you walk away. And now the contractor is in charge of that story. And when the first thing that goes wrong, and every project has things go wrong, the first thing that go wrong, the contractor points at the architect and says he's at fault or she's at fault, and the story shifts in the owner's mind. And you have no way to control that. And construction administration is your greatest marketing opportunity. It's the time where you can help guide the client through that process so you're helping them hold their hands and making sure uh, everything goes smoothly for them but it also is an opportunity to remind them that this great piece of architecture that this contractor is building is coming because you because you designed it with them uh, to to have this amazing space and to remind them that um, this ultimate piece of of architecture that's going to mold your family 
was a result of the process that we went through as architects. So how many people that you work with uh, have a lot of experience? How many of your clients have a lot of prior experience working with architects? Almost none. Almost none. So almost none of them. So really what you're doing is you're not just kind of writing the story of your firm, right. but you're writing the story of architecture in their minds because exactly. the, you know this is where they're learning what it is like to work with an architect. What does the architect bring to the table in terms of value? Uh, you know, what is the role that the architect plays in, uh, you know, getting me from what I'm hoping and dreaming about to, you know, being able to live in it? Um, how does that, how does that play out in your experience? Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly the point. I think that, that if, if every architect is telling their story the way you want it told, uh, then, then it sort of influences the, the greater story. So, in, in our case, the story that we're, that we're telling um, and the process that we're going through gives us the, the opportunity to uh, decide what our fees are going to be and how our contracts are written um, and, and the process that we go through. Because our clients don't have that experience and they don't know what to expect, you're teaching them what they should expect. And so they don't know how much they should pay. They don't know what a contract should look like. They don't know the process that you're going to go through. And so um, many architects don't charge enough. Their, their contracts are either using the large, uh, uh, in, large contracts to sort of um, uh, intimidate clients. Uh, and their process is what they think the architecture process should be rather than what uh, they want it to be. Uh, and so you have this opportunity with these clients who have no experience to teach them what you want your story to be and what you want your process to be and what you want your fee to be. Um, because when I present my proposal to a client, they look at it and they say, oh, this is an architecture proposal and here's the fee. And this is what I assume most architects are charging and what most architects proposals look like. And if they're, they're getting fees and proposals from others, it actually gives us an opportunity to stand out uh, among the crowd of the others who are doing everything the same way to make us look differently uh, and, and, to, and to be telling a different story. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and when I'm listening to, you know, podcasts that give good ideas about different things, there's always this voice in my head that's going, okay, well, that sounds really good. But if I'm the guy that's got to go back to the office and implement that, you know, how are, how is this kind of thing practical? So what I'm wondering is in, in your experience, in your practice, you know, we've talked a lot about marketing, we've talked about uh, building your story, and we've talked about telling your story, educating clients, and that sort of thing. What does this mean f in your practice in terms of the amount of time that you have to put into it? How is it that you cover the expense of doing that? What uh, what did you have to learn in, in in order to be able to do that? How does that play out in your practice? Well, it's it's actually not very time consuming because we've created a proposal that's that's a. a a form that's that we just fill in the the um, uh, the, the fields for the cl specific client and specific project. Our proposal is also our agreement, so it cuts off a step. So we're not doing two separate documents. It's one document that that is a proposal, uh, and then if they want to go forward, they sign that, and it becomes our agreement. Um, the uh, and the in, the entire process, our entire sales process of you know, from the point when the client's picking up the phone and ha scheduling the meeting and, and meeting them and going through that process is all part of a system that I do the same thing on every project. And so there's very little time consuming. Once you set up the system and you set up the forms, uh, it's, it's, it actually saves a lot of time than to try to recreate it every time you go out to another client. Well, what about the part of the process that comes before you make an initial contact with the prospect? When you're talking about how you how you put out the public face of Five Cat, in other words, the brand that you're trying to build out there in the marketplace, all those artifacts that you have to create and the story that you have to put out into the marketplace, that maybe gets people interested in working with you or gives them a certain idea about you before they get a chance to meet you. What does all that entail? Well, I can tell you, there's there's lots that I need to improve. I can tell you that if you go to web, my website at fivecat.com, it's, it's not telling the story of 
of hand-holding and managing the experience as it should. Um, the reason it doesn't is, you know, because I have a lot of hats on and I haven't found the time to do that yet. But, but um, the brand is out there that we are telling that story. And the way we do that is through the experience of, of each project, that we're using each project to teach our clients what they need to know from our point of view and, and guiding them through construction so they see that, that, that architects are there to protect them and to help them through this process. Um, so I would say that, that you know, pre-phone call, pre-prospect, the thing that really needs to be telling that story is your website because when clients are looking for 5CAT, they're Googling Westchester Architects and they're finding our website on that first page. And that when they click that link, um, that link needs to start telling that story of, of why we're different and why uh, we do what we do and how we do it. And, and I could tell you that, that 5CAT's not doing, you know, 5CAT.com is not doing that now, although it's very pretty looking and it has some great architecture, I think, on it. Um, it's not telling the, the story that I wanted to tell. Yeah. So what, um, how would you, what form would that story take? I mean, as you're talking about, you know, how your process is different and how you take care of your people all the way yeah. through, um, you know, one way to tell that story would be to just say those things. But I'm wondering about if there's not another way to tell the story that might be even more powerful where your clients are telling the story. Yeah. I, I, I think testimonials are really important um, on, on social media as well as your website. But I think if I rebuilt the, or when I rebuild the website, um, it, it will be much less focused on the project and much more focused on the process. And I think we can do that through, um, you know, the architecture can be the background to the story that there, there will be testimonials and there will be interviews maybe of videos of clients that have gone through the process talking about the, the, the experience they had with 5CAT and while they're sitting in the space we designed and, and the architecture can, can become much like what I try to, the brand to be. The brand really is more about the experience than the product. I want the website to do the same thing. I want the website to talk about the experience more than the product. So the product will intentionally become uh, the beautiful background of all these stories that these clients are telling, whether it's written or in video or, or uh, however we end up pr presenting it. Sure. And, you know, I have this theory that one of the parts of the story that people always forget to write is the ending. So what is it that you all do at 5CAT to, you know, after a project is complete, what process do you go through to make sure you're kind of capturing the great end to that story? Yeah, I, one of the things we do is we have a follow-up call when it's all finished and they're moved in and they're all happy and, the, and the, all the, the stress and the fatigue of construction is sort of melted away. Uh, we, set, we schedule a time to walk through with the client and actually let them um, uh, give us a tour of their new home and, and tell us about all these amazing spaces that they now have which they forget we've designed, you know, that they sort of start telling us, giving us this grand tour of their home as their home. Um, and it starts dawning on them again, reminding them that, that all these spaces that they're bragging to us about is because of the process that we went through. Um, the other thing we do is that the projects that we want more of, we have uh, professionally photographed. And we do that for more than one reason. The first reason is so we have professional photographs that we can put on our website because I think it's very important that, that from an architect's point of view that, that you're presenting a very beautiful uh, image of the work that you do. But it also shows the client how proud you are of their work, um, that the, the house that, that you've designed for them or the addition that you've designed for them, you're so proud of it that you're going to take professional photographs of it and promote it to other clients. And I think many clients see that as a, a great honor. Um, and that gives you the opportunity to share those great images with your clients. Um, we've, in, in some projects, we've actually put together uh, uh, you know, bound photo album books because it's so easy to do that now, whether through Apple or, or through Shutterfly or whomever, to, to take some great photos and, and, and put, them, put them together in a little book that's branded with your with your logo on the front of it that ends up sitting on their coffee table every day and when their friends come over to have some coffee the the, the book is there and it gives them the opportunity to, to share this book with with them and and maybe that book also has more than just pictures and maybe it has 
more stories and it sort of gives you the story of the process it kind of talks about the design process and talks about um, how you how you uh, help them through with the, the, the bidding and it kind of is a true photo album or a scrapbook uh, of the you know, of the entire process that's branded by your your firm absolutely I mean many of us live in houses but how many of us live in houses that have a story right and what you're what you're giving them is you're giving them a prop that they can they can tell that story I remember um, I was talking to a um, a small firm residential architect here in the uh, the greater Atlanta area and he does a lot of high-end residential work and he was talking about I said well you know tell me about some of the projects that you've done in the last couple of years and he was talking about doing uh, a project for an art collector and you know I said well well tell me a little bit more about that and so he started to describe the physical space and he started to describe all the architectural features and how he was you know designing these special spaces where you know sculptures could go and how the the paintings would be and I kept sort of prodding at um, I kept prodding and poking away at this wondering if he was going to make the jump from what the physical characteristics of and the design characteristics were of this space to what what gift he had given to the owner of that space so you know you've got somebody who's got a passionate um, a passionate hobby so they're so passionate about it that they're willing to put significant resources into it and they've built this art collection and what I kept imagining is I kept imagining what that art collector, you know, what it would sound like, what it would look like to take a tour with that art collector of that new space. And this new space is going to highlight, it's going to show off, it's going to be the stage on which this person can display their passion to their friends and their guests and whoever else kind of comes into the space. And I kept thinking, you know, if if this particular architect I was talking to was able to capture a little bit of the magic of that story and communicate that ahead of time, how much more value would a new prospect think that that architect was going to deliver because of, you know, not only did they get a, a great performing physical space, but they got this other dimension. And the key was is that, you know, um, that an architect should look far enough downstream of the effects of what they're doing to be able to articulate what the real value is because most clients I most clients are probably not going to be design sensitive or design savvy enough to be able to understand the difference between good enough and great architecture is it you think that's a fair statement yeah, I would agree so the thing is is sometimes I think those of us who come from design professions speak about the value of what we do in our own language and we aren't fully aware that we're a lot of times we're talking to people that only speak a few words of that language or speak a different dialect of that language because they've been watching a whole lot of HGTV uh, and they don't they don't really understand how what it is we're talking about is going to going to improve things for them and that ultimately is what a great design project needs to do yeah and, and i think i think we're probably getting to the close to the close on this podcast with our time but um i think that's a very important uh point is that not only is it important for us to tell our stories both to our clients and to the profession at large but it needs to be told in a specific language that can be very easily understood by everybody who's who's you know listening or or reading that story. So um, I want to thank you very much, Bob, for being with me here today and and uh, talking to me about branding and storytelling. Um, this uh, this episode will become our uh, Architox submission, which is uh, let me tell you a little bit about Architox. Architox is a uh, a, is organized by Bob Borson over at the Life of an Architect blog uh, and he puts out every month a subject for bloggers and in my case I do it through a podcast um, last month's subject was this is exciting and you can go back a couple of weeks to uh, to my podcast on that this week's subject is storytelling and I thought you know I had Bob set up for this uh, this slot and we were going to talk about branding and I thought branding and storytelling would be so great to uh, to talk about 
in, in, uh, at the same time. I, and I really think that this was a very valuable conversation. Bob, I appreciate your input and your thoughts here um, on the podcast today. Well, it's been, uh, it's been a whole lot of fun, and I hope that, uh, that people find some value in it. That was a fantastic conversation. You know, Bob and I could have gone on for another two hours talking about that subject of branding and storytelling. You know, I think Bob and I have very similar missions in this world. And both, you know, we're both passionate about being an influential force in this profession of architecture. So please go visit Design Intelligence and go see what they have to offer for you because I think that small firm architects can really benefit from what they're sharing there. Bob and his team do a fantastic job with that publication. You can go to designintelligence.com. Please also visit on Twitter, visit Bob at at Bob Fisher ATL, as in Atlanta, at Bob Fisher ATL, and leave him a tweet to say thank you for sharing so much valuable today on the Entrepreneur Architect podcast. Um, you'll also find links to everything Bob's doing over at the show notes for this episode. Go to entrearchitect.com slash episode 48. And while you're there, please leave a comment and let me know what you think of the show. Now, how are you telling your story? How are you as an individual independent architect telling your story of architecture? How are you adding to the tapestry of all the other stories being told? Please visit the website and leave your thoughts in the comments for the show. This episode of the Entrepreneur Architect podcast was brought to you by Entrepreneur Architect Academy. Entrepreneur Architect Academy is a community of like-minded entrepreneur architects seeking to take their small firms to greater success. You may be the average of the five people with whom you surround yourself, and this is an opportunity to be a part of a group of professionals who are determined to take their profession, their business, their lives, and their leadership to the next level. Enrollment for the Academy is currently closed, but if you're interested in learning more about Entrepreneur Architect Academy and want to receive notification when enrollment for the next class of members opens again, and that will be soon, please visit entrearchitect.com slash academy. And if you like this episode, please go to iTunes and leave me a review. This is how you may help me spread the word about Entrepreneur Architect and our mission to become an influential force in the profession. Go to entrearchitect.com slash iTunes and leave me a review. Um, I'm only halfway to my goal of 100 reviews by the end of the year, and there are are no new reviews of the show this week. So if you like what you're hearing and you have not yet posted a review, please head on over to iTunes and let me know what you think. The guys over at ArcaSpeak, they're still just lagging behind me. I'm at 50. I think they're at 48 or 49. But this is this is head-to-head here, guys. So leave a review at entrearchitect.com slash iTunes. And I do thank you and appreciate your support and encouragement for all that I'm doing here at Entrepreneur Architect. So until next time, my name is Mark Arlapage, and I am an Entrepreneur Architect. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, 
that <laughs> then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i, I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us can we do this are we ready to do this are we prepared can we do it did we just decide a name <laughs> we did it guys oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere Woo! it came out of nowhere i liked it i saw it ready to turn your aspirations into reality follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to emerging and chart your own path to architectural success Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.